Welcome to the podcast channel, What If Education? I am your host, Monica Theron, and our guests today are David Zetland, a university lecturer in political economy at Leiden University College, and Sum Zelmans, responsible for education at Leiden University Green Office, the university's student-led sustainability department. In this podcast, we will be diving into sustainability, what it is, how can we incorporate it into our daily life, and how can we integrate it into education, as well as a look into the future. But before we begin, I'd like to give our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves. So David, would you like to give us a quick intro? Oh, you just said it. I am from the US, from California, and I teach at LUC, and I enjoy my job. And you, Sum? Hi, I'm Sum. I studied at Leiden University College. Actually, uh, David was one of my professors there, uh, so we had plenty of opportunity to have these types of conversations. I also work at Leiden University Green Office, which is a student team that works for Leiden University uh, to make it more sustainable in all different facets, from operations to education, from research to outreach. Okay. Let me set the scene for the listeners before we dive into all the questions I have for you. Education for sustainability means teaching students the skills, knowledge and attitudes to take action for a more sustainable world in future careers and life and empowering them. So when we think about climate change, biodiversity, reducing poverty, sustainable consumption amongst many others, one major goal that has been set up is for us to stop emitting greenhouse gases by 2050. So that means in 29 years, there are no net carbon emissions worldwide. I would assume this is a challenge. So here's the question. What does sustainability mean to you? How does it or has it affected you in your own life? David, uh, if you'd like to take the floor. So you, you mentioned two things, which is education and then action. And I don't think those are the same thing. So we can pull that apart uh, later on, I think. Um, but what sustainability means to me is that uh, whatever you're doing can continue indefinitely. My girlfriend works for a, a, one of her, her companies called Sustainable Amsterdam. And one of the definitions of Sustainable Amsterdam is that Amsterdam will be here in the future in a prosperous form let us say. And in terms of local sustainability, I think Amsterdam has got that handled. In terms of global sustainability, I think Amsterdam is actually going to be underwater uh, in the next couple hundred years because of global problems with a lack of sustainability regarding climate change. You mentioned that education and action are not the same thing. What, do you, what did you mean by that? I think that the, the mo most of the challenges that we face around sustainability are, are versions of collective action problems. Uh, so what that means is that if some people want to do something and other people do not, that those other people can overwhelm or their, their lack of action is, means that sustainability is not possible. So that makes it difficult. If you're going to have coordinated action on something, that could mean uh, what everybody thinks about, which is waking up uh, as a virtuous person and doing all the right things, or what I think is actually more realistic, which is that there is a political change of policy, let's say, that forces the less virtuous people into a more virtuous path. And that is a real challenge. But that's, I think, the only way to actually get to a sustainability. Okay. And Sum, what does uh, sustainability mean to you? So 
conceptually, I very much agree with David. And it's funny that you mentioned the possibility of a flooded Amsterdam. Uh, a while ago, I looked up the elevation of Leiden University itself, and we're super close to the current sea level. Our campus in The Hague, uh, where I studied and where David works, is less than a meter above sea level, and it's a coastal city. So uh, I agree with David's definition more or less, but I think it's also dangerous to keep sustainability so conceptual. Because if you're discussing it only conceptually, the challenges don't seem to feel as urgent as they should be. But we're essentially talking about access to food. How are you feeding yourself and your family if extreme weather destroyed your harvest? Where are you going to take shelter if a flood or a hurricane destroys your home? Uh, what are you going to drink if a chemical, uh, if a chemical company pollutes your water supply? So the environmental crisis—they're not just academic concepts, but they're destroying people's livelihoods around the world already. And why or when did sustainability become a topic for you? Like what what in your life happened that you suddenly decided, okay, I have to do something about it. It speaks to me. So uh, last year before COVID, I was part of a field course in East Africa to study sustainable livelihoods. That was in January, which is, by the way, the dry season in northern Tanzania. Um, we're traveling on this small road inland and our bus got stuck in a small mud pool. But we're incredibly close, like one kilometer from where we would set up camp. So we just got out of the bus and walked the last bits, leaving our tents and many of us, even our raincoats behind in the bus, which once I think back of it, it's such a stupid decision. But uh, anyway, we continue, we continue to camp and it's the sun was setting. It was starting to get dark. And suddenly it started to pour and pour and pour like I'd never seen before. And it didn't seem to, st didn't seem to stop. Um, and as I said, January is supposed to be the dry season. And we're just a group of like 30 or so students and staff standing around a fire, cuddling each other to stay warm without any shelter. And also some of the local Maasai people that were with us, they said that this is so incredibly unusual for the time of the year, but that they also have trouble um, with the climate currently because it's getting so much more irregular. The seasons are shifting that they don't really know what to do anymore because they also, of course, very much depend on this cycle of dry season, wet season and dry season, wet season. So that's when it's the... The emotional connection for sustainability, I started to feel that a bit more during that moment. Did you have a moment like that as well, David, where you suddenly realized, okay, I need to talk about it, do something about it? I mean, I think that I've been thinking about it for a little while because I moved from California to the Netherlands and the Netherlands is by its name under you know the lowlands. And so I already was thinking and talking about climate change, but I think so people were saying, oh, you're going, you know, you're worried about climate change, but you're going to a country that's literally going to be flooded. And one thing that's important when it comes to sustainability is governance. And I, I told people like, I'd rather be at risk of going underwater among the Dutch than at risk of dealing with crazy people in California with too many guns. And there were some surprises that came after that, of course, the, the wildfires in California this last year. But I think that the, 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 the moment that I really took it to heart freaked out about uh, climate change. There were there were two of them. The, the one that was, I think, 
my intellectual kind of comprehension of this was when I was reading several different papers by academics, uh, one of them by Jim Hansen, who's quite famous in the climate change world. Uh, and he was talking about how sea level rise estimates are maybe off by quite a large degree. And that if you take a more pessimistic view, that sea level rise might be way stronger than what we think. And the other uh, paper that I read was by Marty Weitzman, who actually committed suicide a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, not, or so unfortunately, unfortunately, he committed suicide, but it was not around climate change. It was around his own um, intellectual decline and also the fact that he was not part of the Nobel Prize that William Nordhaus won but did not deserve to win. And Weitzman's uh, paper that, that really made me freak out was talking about how economic models are completely, uh, have been completely miscalibrated for risk as far as climate change is concerned. And if you're aware of this fact, then you know that almost all of the intellectual foundation of what we should do about climate change, carbon pricing, et cetera, is therefore wrong. So it's a huge disaster because um, most people in the public, they don't understand that these foundations are out there. But Weissman was pointing out that these models are miscalibrated. I understood at least that much. I also understood uh, Hansen's perspective on, on sea level rise. And those two events were what led me to, to do this project called Life Plus Two Meters, which was imagining life in a climate changed world, because I, I literally don't know what to do in terms of action. And I thought that telling stories would help people understand or think about a future world. So I, I was doing that as, as like, stop, drop everything, drop everything, but I'm an academic. I, I, I don't really go and march on the streets, although uh, I think XR had, had a, a good point on this. So, so that was um, important. And then when it came to the, came to the actual classroom and, and, vis and witnessing climate change, like Soom's discussion, that was when I was teaching actually environmental economics to a bunch of master's students and uh, the polar vortex started leaving its path, so to speak. And the Netherlands, I believe, oh, actually all of Europe was actually, or North America, they were getting really bad winter storms that were not expected. And that polar vortex uh, breaking from its traditional uh, location, so to speak, is a leading indicator of things going wrong in the climate. And I walked into class that day and I said, well, you know, there's always this discussion about climate versus weather. And the weather right now is consistent with the climate being changed. And that was, you know, only three or four years ago. Uh, but the, the amount of evidence piling up about climate change harming us immediately right now is, is I mean, insurmountable. I don't think you can, anybody can deny that. Uh, people that are, are basically cra crazy in my mind. Yeah, the weather changes are dramatic. I am from Namibia, so I, I see the same. We've had severe droughts for many, many years. I mean, it's known as a desert country. And at the moment, um, they, they're flooding. They're, there is so much water. People are not used to it. No, this is, I mean, and that's, that's a, the biggest challenge, actually, in climate change is not that humans will or will not be able to adapt. It's the impact on ecosystems that we depend on. And, you know, the, oh yeah, it's nice to have water and people can whatever, take a bath or they can store it, but animals and plants, they, they can't adapt that quickly. I think that that also is a big issue of the framing of climate change and global warming is that these terms, they just sound too friendly. Uh, global warming, it sounds like as if you can take off another layer uh, in, in autumn and enjoy the warm weather. And while there are definitely more warm days with climate change, at least where I live, that doesn't tell you the full story because essentially it's also about food insecurity. We may not be an agrarian society here anymore, but if 
uh, all the harvests are destroyed because of floods or because of, of extreme drought, what are we still going to eat? Because we still depend on agriculture. And, and it's worse than that because the, the, the poor people in the world, um, you know, in the Netherlands, we're rich, essentially. We can buy food. The poor people can't. So the food crisis is already occurring. There's already uh, problems with hunger in the poorer countries. And we'll, we will be insulated because we have money. But poor people will not. Or people in poor countries, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. We've kind of answered the second question, which was what happens if we don't meet our targets for 2050? Um, are there any uh, thoughts that you still have that you would like to add? So I, you know, Sum uses the uh, expression climate crisis, which I think is is good. I go a little bit further, maybe, if, I don't know if it's further one way or the other, but I call it climate chaos. And I think that every part of society, uh, every sector of society, whether it's uh, security or food or housing, every sector is going to be pulled into this directly or indirectly. And uh, so this 2050 stuff, one of the biggest problems with climate change has been a lot of announcements about 2030, 2050, 2100. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's later. And as we've seen with COVID, everything can stop on a dime, essentially, by government mandate. And people put up with it. And and COVID is, I would say, you know, one one hundredth of the threat of climate change to humanity. And, and we're doing almost nothing to take that into account compared to, to COVID. So that's, uh, that, that, that itself is terrifying to me because it's not like climate change has stopped while we had a COVID crisis. That's true. Yeah. So here's another question. Given the urgency of the climate crisis and other environmental crises, it seems like we should obviously start doing something about it. What role do you think the university can have in this? So you already mentioned the issue of these faraway goals of 2030, 2050. And that reminded me of this Chinese proverb that says, uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. So yes, we should really get to work to meet these goals. Um, but because it's such a big challenge, we need to reimagine basically every part of our lives to meet that target. So that's not just some changes here or there, but we need to reimagine every single part of what society looks like. From how we get from A to B, how we produce our food, how we live, where we live, what we eat, how our stuff is produced, how our economy is set up. And to extend that to academia, which was your question, it is a transformation that touches upon every single discipline of a university, from the humanities to physics, from archaeology to medicine. So often when I speak with people in the university about sustainability, they immediately think of the operations of the university. So recycling, solar panels, the restaurants, etc. And yes, of course, we should be sustainable in this area too, and we can lead by example. But the real responsibility of a university, in my, in my opinion, is research and education. A transition to sustainability will require tons of new innovations and knowledge and uh, we need to equip the students, we need to equip our students with the skills and knowledge to work on that future sustainable society. So we need to essentially make sure to teach our students how they can make an impact for sustainability from their academic fields. So I think that the university has uh, what, what Sum says about it has a research role, it has a teaching role, and I think the university itself is an organization, and it should walk the walk. I know Sum can actually talk a lot about this, 
but one example I think is important is that universities, for example, should not uh, subsidize or reimburse anybody for air travel. And it's quite common for academics to fly around the world and they talk to each other, but of course they, they happen to have conferences in very nice places. That's not an accident. Uh, so if they're going to keep subsidizing air travel, then I think they're being hypocritical. Um, I think in many cases that flights should actually be banned. I'm an economist, so I'll, I'll speak more about that in a second. But when you're at the organizational level, you can make decisions, for example, to not serve meat in the cafeterias. The other element is that the university is outward facing, right? They're in the world and they're interacting with the world. And those interactions should be I think far stronger than they are. Uh, there's a huge amount of academic a activity which is not climate related or even climate counterproductive. And some of that is is probably unhelpful. And universities are, uh, I'm not gonna talk about you know ac academic freedom. I think that's freedom as, as anywhere, but universities need to be a lot more careful about uh, what they are supporting uh, as, as opposed to just you know walking over. And going back to that flight plan, uh, sorry, ban uh, idea, you know, taken to its extreme, that would mean that the Netherlands would not accept students from outside of the train catchment. So if you're from Namibia, Namibia no. If you're from California, no, unless you're going to come across on a boat. Uh, but we, we are very eager in the Netherlands to have international students, international colleagues, international conferences, and that is literally contributing to the problem. And that, of course, the students that we do have, we need to prepare them to work in a sustainable economy or to work for a sustainable economy which means that i think that if you're studying law you should learn how with your law degree you can work for a more sustainable future I think for example in the netherlands we have a famous uh, urgenda case which is a organization that sued the government that they should take more climate action and they won and just like the legal fields and every academic field, there's an overlap for sustainability. As a university, we are teaching the next politicians, the new business people, the new bureaucrats and the scientists. And they all need to work on, on a more sustainable future. It's all hands on deck, basically. So if we are not giving like this necessary update to our education by teaching our students about sustainability in their discipline, we're basically teaching them knowledge that is outdated. Uh, I think that David can also talk a lot about this in, in his discipline of economics, that if you're just studying economics and you don't know how economics relates to the environment, that you just didn't have a proper education for the 21st century. Yeah. So the, the next question would then be, which classes at Leiden University are actually implementing sustainability? and which ones are not, and the ones that are not, how would you convince them to do so, at least from a point that it's necessary? So I think that the, I mean, the university offers thousands of classes, so I don't think that's gonna be uh, what we're gonna talk about, but as general principles, uh, I think the students probably need to take the lead on this. And by lead, I mean they don't enroll in courses. They don't enroll in degrees uh, that are not sustainable. I mean, if you're going to have a degree in languages, that's probably okay. 
If you're doing a degree in, in petroleum technology, that's probably not okay. Uh, so that should be a factor because if you if you say, oh, we're just going to ban, we're just going to shut down the petroleum engineering faculty at Delft. Uh, I don't even know if that exists, by the way. Uh, then that petroleum engineering faculty could pop up in the U.S. or Canada or Russia. So that's that doesn't fix the problem. It, it has to be a demand side from the students. On the other hand, I think that the university and professors in the university are. Yeah, they're not taking it seriously. Uh, the, the biggest issue is is when their entire research agenda involves uh, something which is not sustainable. And, you know, professors are people too, and they don't want to go learn a whole bunch of new stuff. And they're going to keep talking about what they've been talking about forever. I think soon, um, I mean, we can go into a long discussion about how terrible economics teaching is uh, in general. That's a real issue that I'm concerned about. And the professors in those fields will give you a long explanation about why doing the exact same thing they've done for 30 years is a great idea, but that is not bringing the education into the 21st century, let alone, by the way, the 20th century. So one course that I think always should come up for review is a course, our courses in ethics. And courses in ethics are offered at law faculties and business schools, and they're usually a, a version of a fig leaf over the sins to, to be committed in the future. Yeah, to give an example of uh, a study program where I think this is going incredibly well. My two housemates, uh, well, two of my housemates are um, studying architecture and urban planning at Delft University of Technology. And basically everything that they do relates to sustainability. When they design new buildings and when they design new neighborhoods, they take everything into account from greenery around the urban planning to insulation, to lighting, to ecology, to transportation to and from the neighborhood that is carbon free. And at first I thought that this was like super progressive and uh, an incredibly forward thinking. And yes, of course, to some extent it is, but it's also just very pragmatic, I think. Because if you are an urban planner or an architect today, you won't be designing neighborhoods anymore that are so incredibly polluting. You won't be designing buildings anymore that are poorly insulated. So their education has just gotten the necessary updates, so to say. And we need to make sure that this happens to all the different study programs that we are offering at the university that have an overlap with sustainability. Can I say a little bit more about that? Because I, I assume Putin made a very good point there. You know, when you when you build a, a building, uh, it will last, generally speaking, for 50 or 100 years. And replacing that building with something new and fancy or even new and sustainable is quite expensive. It's actually sometimes more expensive than just letting it sit with its with old bad standards. And so the long lead time or the long lifetime of various projects requires that we have uh, long-term planning. The Dutch are quite good at that, but uh, the, the the real problem is that uh, you know when you educate a generation of students, they're going to go off for the rest of their life and make good decisions or bad decisions based on their education. When you build a building, a well-built building, sustainable, etc., it will last for a hundred years. But if it's bad building, and we have lots of examples of that in in the world as well as the Netherlands, then it's going to be ugly or unsustainable for hundreds of years. Or, or thereabout. So the challenge is that individuals on a daily basis are not making decisions about should I make a building or not today. They're going to that building over and over again. They're making a decision about lunch. And so that decision is good. That's an individual decision. But when it comes to long-term impacts, we have to have a much bigger social discussion and a visionary agreement on what to do. And 
I think that's a difficult one for, for most societies and especially for most politicians. And if you bring it into the university, then you also have the same sort of process. Do you see a way in to kind of get management on board? I think management at the university level is uh, has its has its vision very much in front of its feet. It's not looking very far forward. Budgetary cycles. I mean, here's the way to specify it, and it's it's government has the exact same thing. When the budgetary cycle is a single year, or if you're if you're lucky, a few years, then you think that far forward. Uh, the EU budget is set for seven years, I believe, right? But there's a very famous problem in in budgeting, which is looking at annual expenditures and and income versus long-term capital spending. Some governments, some universities are very good at taking capital, the capital cycle into account. Some are terrible. And if you're not taking the capital cycle into account, then you're not going to take climate change or other long-term sustainability into account. So that has to be part of the everyday process. And it will get attention and it will get appropriate attention, but it's not even usually on the table. And um, you mentioned in, in the beginning that students should have the voice do you think that's the right approach? Who's, who's yeah. the one that's going to convince management or university to change? Is it the student or is it an outsider? Is it a, a blend of everybody? Yeah. When I was I was teaching at, at Berkeley in 2009, and I was teaching a course on environmental policy, and students were one day uh, remarking on how there was a march around campus to protest something about environment. Uh, I think it was British Petroleum was setting up an institute. And I said, you know, that march is just bullshit. If you want to actually have an impact, you should go occupy the chancellor's parking place because the chancellor will not be able to park and suddenly you will have attention, right? So students need to attack universities just where you can attack a company, which is where they get their money. And if you defund anything, you know, in the US, they talk about defunding the police, but you got to defund uh, unsustainability. And students can are, are protesters, but much more importantly, they can be voters and if they get their parents involved then there's some real money going on so you have if you want to make a pinch point you go straight for the jugular you go for the money and you know I'll tell you that you every university around the world actually cares much more about money than about intellects or ideas or academics and you see this because plenty of universities shut down for lack of demand and they fire all staff so money is is you know I'm, I'm a, I know I'm an economist but money is way stronger than ideology in any of these discussions Sum, do you have anything to add? This definitely goes for programs like petroleum engineering and other very unsustainable programs. But there are a lot of programs that are in between teaching how to destroy the world and how to improve the world. There's a, there's a lot of room between petroleum engineering and industrial ecology, so to say. And that is, like, for example, the psychology programs, the archaeology programs, the economic programs that are not inherently good or bad, but more neutral. And I think we should also seem to find a way to make these neutral programs, so to say, more sustainable in terms of what they teach and what their staff is researching. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I can add a little bit to what Sum is saying. And there's an active role of this kind of vision, which is to have those, uh, the archaeology, no, ar yeah, archaeology, whatever department, have a discussion about sustainability. But the, the passive impetus, the passive force that you can enable in these things are along the lines of what I've discussed before about a carbon tax. And so a carbon tax has the, the beauty of 
increasing the price of carbon intense activities without needing people to have a PhD in ethics or, or uh, caring about the planet. You know, it's really far down the line to think about car- about sustainability. But if they, for example, like I said before, they, they can't get reimbursement on a flight or if, they, if they're going to have like a bit of bala with, with meat in them and they have to pay, you know, six euros a portion and the vegetarian bit of bala is two euros a portion, then they'll be like, well, yeah, uh, we, we like meat, but we don't like paying money. And um, it's a university policy, but suddenly the archaeology department has, you know, vegetarian bit of bala, even though no one cares about the sustainability. So th- I think there are active things to be done, but the passive ones because they are so subliminal and so easy to implement across the board, they can be much more powerful, actually, because a lot of people will change their behavior without even knowing that they are. Okay, now we're going into the other part of the podcast. So let's say it's 2050, and we have achieved most of our sustainability goals. But to quote Newton's third law, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Let's say that this is true in this hypothetical scenario. So all countries, be it first world or third world, have no more food issues. There is no extreme weather conditions. Everyone is sort of equal. But here's a problem. We all live healthier lives. We all have cozy homes. We all have the technology we want. We still consume, even though we recycle more and live as environmentally friendly as possible. But no matter how you look at it, we are multiplying, um, living longer. Thus, we are starting to run out of space, food, and water. And, well, our land cannot sustain us for much longer. Our environmental impact is an issue. Okay, let me try and rephrase the question to see if I understand correctly. So basically, you're saying climate change is not a problem. And everybody's happy uh, going about their lives. as if So as if climate change has been vanquished somehow. You know the the green the green deal has uh, occurred, and now we're on to the next set of problems, which is you know resource uh, scarcity. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, exactly. So we're running out of so so we're too many people. Either way, yeah. everything is fine, but we're too many people. This is the yeah. biggest problem. Too many people equals not enough food equals sure, running sure, out of water sure, equals sure. running out of land. What did is anybody thinking about that? So in some ways right now, so right now, now, a lot of concentration is on, on coronavirus. Uh, and that's been quite interesting in terms of, you know, how people have changed their lives, how happy or unhappy they are. And compared to coronavirus, climate change, as I mentioned before, is a much bigger threat. Now, if you look underneath climate change, and let's just say it just didn't exist, just say that, you know, we spent whatever it was, $50 trillion, and we transitioned the entire world into uh, clean energy, which I think is possible, by the way, with nuclear power and renewable energy. And what we haven't fixed, several problems. Uh, biodiversity loss is a huge one. Soil loss is a huge one. Water scarcity is another one. So if you're going down that road, let me, let me speak a little bit about that. In industrial ecology, there's this great equation called the IPAT equation. And it is just a conceptual way of thinking of the world. And IPAT stands for uh, impact equals population times affluence times technology. And if technology gets better, then you can lower impact. That's one thing that's helpful. And technology has been getting better with smartphones and solar panels and so on. The, the population equation has been getting better with the empowerment of women, essentially, because then they get to decide how many children they want to have. And this, this is getting, you know, I think this is conventional wisdom at this point. The affluence 
thing is the problem. So you just said everybody's happy in their house and their consumption or whatever. And that is, I believe, that's the, that's the issue. So the only way to get a, away from affluence is to either convince people that they should uh, consume less than they are able to with their budget, which by the way, is not going to happen, or to get them to, to remove their, uh, to reduce their budget so they can't consume as much. And that can happen through higher taxes, essentially on wealth or income, but I, I'm personally a favor of wealth taxes, or raising the prices of consumption, which is the equivalent of raising the VAT. And, uh, you know, this might seem either philosophically, politically, or socially impossible, but I live in a flat in Amsterdam, which is six, uh, 60 square meters. In the United States, that's uh, just translated into the regular, uh, not regular, uh, freedom units. It's about 600 square feet. And 600 square feet in the United States is similar to refugee housing, as far as Americans are concerned. And when you see Americans, they are not just large physically, but they live in large spaces. They drive large cars, and they're the exact same DNA as we are. When you take a Dutch person, you drop them in the United States, they get just as big and just a big house and so on. And the thing is, the happiness of the Dutch people relative to the happiness of the American people is relatively similar. So you can have that happy world with half the footprint, let's say. And that requires either an accident of history, the Netherlands being land being so expensive that people build small houses, uh, or virtue, which is just not going to happen, or government policy, which is an intervention that if you're going to buy a bigger thing, um, you know, in Italy, they used to tax cars based on the size of their engine, for example. That's how they made little cars that go very fast. So this is quite doable, but it requires that uh, governments get involved in setting these constraints on people's consumption. I think the population discussion is not worth having. The, the Chinese one-child policy was a disaster, uh, not just for humanitarian purposes, but also because it didn't actually do anything useful for population. And you know, empowering women is a great idea. I think I'm pro, but when you have a, a patriarchy that want to keep women as baby-making machines, that's going to be a tough one. But in those governments, you're not going to get a, a reduction in, in consumption either because they, they think it's great also to consume so much. So it requires that the, the government, and by the government, I mean the population, decides that it's a good idea for everybody to live with less. And I was thinking the other day about you know Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, uh, two of the richest people on the planet. Uh, and you, know, uh, you can throw other people in there. And if you reduce each of their wealth by half, it's not like they're going to be poor. And all they really care about is, do I have more billions than the guy next to me, right? So two billion is bigger than one billion. And that's just the same as 20 billion is bigger than 10 billion. The extra billions don't buy you much except for excess consumption. And when it comes to our, our housing and our income and our consumption, all of that stuff can be on a lower level and we'll still have a much better life than almost anybody else um, in our past history. We, we, no one wants to leave 2021 and go back to 1921 because the quality of life uh, is, is so poor. Uh, so, so the technology can give us a good quality of life with a lot less spending. Your turn, Sum. Uh, okay, well, that's uh, it's a lot of... <laughs> that's a lot you just threw on my lap. Um, it's also, I think, worth checking out the other, the other side of the dime, which is that you asked a very valid question. Also, what happens if we still end up with a lot of sustainability crisis in 2050? And what happens if we're not able to solve them? And there is a very decent chance that we're way too late with many sustainability challenges. And climate change has already happened. We're just trying to limit climate change now, which is climate mitigation. But we also need to learn to adapt to live in a new climate. And coming back to the role of universities in this, I think that 
universities do not only have a role in reducing climate change and solving other environmental crises, but also in making sure that our world is adapted to living in a world that's maybe 1.5 or maybe 2 degrees warmer than it is currently or than it was before the Industrial Revolution. And that is coming up with new ways of doing agriculture that are much more drought and are much more uh, weather resistant than the ones we have now. And to design new neighborhoods that do not have as many issues with heat stress and to be able to deal with way more many refugees that are moving from place A to place B because the region where they lived is no longer inhabitable for so many people. These are all very valid questions that we're going to need to answer and universities can definitely have a role in making sure this is being dealt well through research and through education. I want to add a, sm a small thing to what Sum just said. I agree with everything you said. And I, the thing I want to add is that, you know, universities are not the only source of knowledge or innovation. I think that's kind of obvious, but they also tend to, in the Netherlands, for example, they have the universities and they also have the, the what they call the universities of applied sciences, the Hochschulen. And those universities, the, the applied sciences, not only do they educate a multiple of universities, maybe three or four times as many students, but they also are much more applied in terms of their work and their activities. And then you go into the completely so-called uneducated sector, which is the sector occupied by most of the world's inhabitants, because university degrees are actually quite rare. And those people are very good at pragmatic solutions and, and innovations and in, inventions. And so I think there should be a lot more praise heaped upon people that can solve problems instead of saying that, oh, universities are the, the source of all of our solutions. Because in most cases, universities are a waste of time. And we're, we're really neglecting a lot of the, the solutions that are out there, but they're brought to us by people that, are, that don't have the right paperwork. And that's a tragedy because we're really, we should be desperate for solutions at this point. Any ideas? What ideas. are the solutions? Well, I just think the most important idea is to put attention upon these people the other one is to have policies that, that promote uh, solutions instead of policies that promote talking, um, like the, the Conference of Parties, the COP. If the oil industry was going to design a way of not doing anything about climate change, they would have designed the Conference of Parties, those COP conferences. People fly around the world. They have a lot of expensive meals. They don't do anything. Oh, I'll see you next year. So they, they need to get a lot more serious about uh, actually taking action and a lot more serious about praising people that are, that are bringing solutions. A lot of these solutions are are quite traditional, or what do you even call it, informal. Uh, they've been out there for a million years. And, and the poor, this is a thing called uh, frugal innovation. The poor are actually quite good at innovating, but they, they don't get the platform and they certainly don't have any funding. Uh, and so I think societies could put uh, just a little 1% of their university budgets or their research budgets into pragmatic solutions, and that would have a, big, uh, a much bigger impact than the other 99%. For example, many regions around the world have had indigenous agriculture, even Europe, before we started doing this mass-scale industrial agriculture, which really worked wonders in terms of sustainability, there, because there are so many, so many perennial plants that there weren't many issues with soil erosion. And of course, it wasn't perfect. There was a lot more food insecurity than there is today in many areas. But I think these are also the things we should revalue, and many places, even without universities, we created a lot of knowledge and a lot of, of societies and systems that were very sustainable, at least ecologically speaking. And we can learn from those and we should absolutely do so.
Well, um, even though I'm sure we could talk about ways to improve our lifestyles or make the necessary changes we need in order to save the planet further, we have unfortunately come to the end of this podcast. And I hope that the listeners out there learned something and will contribute towards sustainability, no matter how big or small the impact. Change is inevitable, be it good or bad. However, it's up to us to decide what side we want to be on. Um, and with that last statement, I would like to thank my guests, David Zetland and Sum Zelmans for joining me today. And I wish you all the success in your future endeavors until the next time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for both of you. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>